0: If you have your copy of God's Word, let's go ahead and turn this morning to Colossians chapter 2, continuing to make our way through this epistle, and this morning we're going to be considering Colossians 2, verses 8 through 15. See to it. That no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you've been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. "...by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Would you join with me in prayer, asking that our God would be faithful to his promise to help us hear and receive his word? Father, we do come to you in the name of our Jesus, who is the risen one, who is our Lord, who is the Christ. Lord, he is the victor that has triumphed over our great adversary, the adversary that seeks to accuse and condemn us in our sin. And Father, we rejoice to hear that in Christ, the record of debt and all its legal demands have been set aside, having been canceled and wiped clean. Father, help us to see Christ this morning. Lord, we need the assurance of the gospel, for our faith is often weak. Our hearts often risk becoming calloused and hardened. So please, Father, send your spirit this morning to refresh us and assure us of all that Christ accomplishes for sinners. We pray. Amen. Are you saved? Maybe it's a question you've recently been asked. Perhaps. You've asked it. A friend, a co-worker, a neighbor, you've asked them these very words, are you saved? Or maybe you've recently picked up some sort of gospel tract or a short booklet that put that very question before you, asking, are you saved? And maybe you've even asked, what is it with Christians and their infatuation with people being saved? What is is this obsession?" Well, a better question and perhaps a more helpful question is, what do we really mean by "saved? Certainly, it has to do with a salvation from death. If we read our Bibles, it would have something to do with the salvation from sin, a salvation from the judgment of hell. But ultimately, and perhaps most helpfully, when the Bible speaks of salvation, it's not so much a thing but a person. If we begin to think of salvation in that way, we'll actually begin to be thinking and speaking much more consistent with what we see in our New Testament and all of Scripture. It's for that reason that this phrase, union with Christ, is perhaps the best definition and picture of what it means to be saved. For everything that salvation promises and everything that we enjoy as God's people comes to us as a result of being united to, joined to, embraced, and wed to Christ. According to the Apostle Paul, to be without Christ is to be without hope and without God in this world. But in that same letter, he says that to to be in Christ is to have all spiritual blessings. Likewise, in John's Gospel... Or epistle Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And so this means that union with Christ, it's not the bridge that brings us into salvation, but it's actually the entire structure that we are at home in, that we live in, that we dwell in. To be in Christ, to be saved, is to be united to him. What we're saying and what we're going to see here this morning in the scripture is that to be saved is not simply given the benefits of salvation, but be united to Christ who is our salvation. And that distinction may sound small, but friend, it is massive when you begin to understand not just what is given to us, but how we are assured of what is given to us. And as we turn to Colossians 2, we're hearing of Paul's great concern over this very issue. We're hearing of Paul's great concern over such erroneous and alarming teaching. What's happening here in this city where this church resides is that false teaching is is pressing in upon these faithful saints that are here. And Paul is concerned that though their faith is in Christ, And though there's much fruit being born because of that faith and their love for all the saints and their hope that's laid up for them in heaven, Paul nevertheless is concerned that they may, in fact, be deluded, that they might be deceived by well crafted, convincing, plausible arguments. So here's the question How do you refute false teaching? Specifically to a church that's been faithfully taught by this man, Epaphras. They put their faith in Christ. They're seeking to put to death the deeds of the flesh. They want to grow in conformity to Christ. All good things. How, in a context like that, do you help someone guard themselves to fight and refute false teaching? Well, if we follow Paul's example and we follow Paul's pattern here in chapter 2, we'll find that we fight false teaching by clarifying sound doctrine and holding fast to sound teaching. You fight false teaching by laying alongside it sound doctrine. So let's consider this morning the actual alarm that Paul has over false teaching, and then we'll consider the assurance of sound doctrine. The alarm of false teaching and the assurance of sound doctrine. What's his concern? What's the alarm of this false teaching? Well, it's there in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. This phrase, see to it, the first three words of verse 8. It really sets the tone for everything that Paul's going to say after this. It's an exhortation. It means to look around, to pay attention, to look carefully, so much so that you're on guard, that you're on alert. The opposite would be somebody who's distracted, somebody who's unaware. Maybe they're walking, but they're not paying attention. They're moving forward, but oblivious to their surroundings. Paul is saying you cannot do that. See to it. It's a call, it's a charge to pay attention, most specifically because of this concern of false teaching. If Paul says this to, again, the faithful saints, that reminds us just right off the top that everything that he's going to say here, this concern of false teaching, that it's not left to just the pastors or to the theologians. This concern to see to it and to look, to be on guard, it demands that all faithful saints Be looking. Why? Well, because of what he says next. What's his alarm over this false teaching? Well, first of all, it's enslaving. To say that they may be taken captive, it's a very visual word. It means to be carried off as plunder by this teaching. Don't be taken captive. Don't be carried off as the spoils of war for this false teaching it is actually enslaving. Don't think of this, Paul says, as just a matter of difference of opinion. That over time, it'll just get worked out. The wrinkles will come out eventually and it'll all be fine. Do not think for a moment that it is in that category that I'm speaking of, Paul says. This is actually something that could take you captive to fall prey to this particular deception is to become enslaved to a way of life that rips you your freedom from you, and in shackles you in bondage. As we move through chapter 2, we're going to see some of the specifics of what that actually looks like. This is an enslaving problem. And again, we said last week, this is not so much philosophy itself that Paul is concerned with, but the sort of knowledge that is deceptive and ultimately empty. Look ahead at verse 23 of chapter 2. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It's the appearance of something helpful, but it's actually of no help at all. This is the sort of teaching that enslaves well-meaning Christians, wanting to say no to sin. The sort of Christian, the follower of Christ, who wants to grow in godliness. This is the sort of Christian that you would find gathered with the saints on the Lord Day, with a Bible open, seeking to be encouraged, wanting to be faithful followers. That's who we're talking about. And he says, see to it. There's something lurking around that can actually enslave that sort of person. He says also that it's earthly. Paul says this false teaching is according to human tradition, which reminds us of Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees and the scribes in Mark chapter 7, who left the commandments of God to uphold their tradition. Do you know the word that Jesus had for this sort of decision? Hypocrisy. In Mark chapter 7, verse 7, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God to hold to the tradition of men. That's the sort of hypocrisy that Jesus is rebuking, and that's the sort of human tradition that Paul is saying is creeping in amongst them. It's earthly. And so the rebuke here is not against tradition outright. It's not as if all tradition is ungodly, but the exaltation of human tradition at the expense of God's command is most certainly problematic. This is the sort of thing when somebody turns their preferences into precepts. This is the sort of scenario when somebody turns opinions into commands, This is the sort of context where it would be better to say, you may, but instead they've said, you must. The exaltation of human tradition at the expense of God's commands. Well, it's not only enslaving, it's not only earthly. He says it's actually elementary. That's the next concern he has. The word translated here as spirits that you see in verse 8. It can have various meanings in Scripture, and sometimes it's hard to discern what is the the contextual meaning here when he says spirits. I think the context here of Colossians 2 and the concentric circle of Ephesians and Galatians, another one of Paul's letters, helps provide some clarity here what Paul means when he says the elementary spirits of this world. To speak of spirits here, don't think of it in the sense of beings, like angels or demons but in how we might use it, what's the spirit of the matter? And by that, you know what the person is talking about. The, what's the essence? What the, what's the principles in play? What are the elements of what you're talking about? What is the force behind something? What's the spirit of what's going on here? And he says, this is just all according to the elementary principles. Galatians chapter 4, verse 3. Same word. In this same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? If you remember the context there in the book of Galatians, is that Paul is using uh, growth in, 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 of a child as as a picture, He's using the growth of a child as a metaphor for really the course of, of salvation history that's unfolding. Israel, under the law, was like a child, yet to receive her full inheritance. And once that fullness came, then the guardianship is to be removed. It's, it's no longer needed. What Paul is saying is that likewise, the elementary elements given to Israel under the old covenant served in an important purpose to establish them as the means by which God would bring about the new covenant, Christ himself. These ceremonial and civil laws that applied to the kingdom of Israel, they're elementary in the sense that they serve a purpose to bring about the Christ. The One promise to Abraham that would come through the children of Abraham. From the tribe of Judah, this Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. Now, would it make sense to return to those elementary principles that served really to bring about the great substance? And that's what Paul is concerned with here in Colossians 2. And so the dietary restrictions, the ceremonial laws that marked out Israel, he says were elementary. They're not intended to to guide or to shape forever and yet that's what you're hearing the false teachers are saying look down to verse 21 do not handle do not taste do not touch insisting that old covenant holy days and obedience to old covenant jewish rules still apply lest you think that I'm enslaved to the letter E, the final concern that Paul mentions is that it's inconsistent. It says, not according to Christ. It's enslaving, it's earthly, it's elementary, and it's inconsistent. The great concern and the obvious conclusion that this false teaching, it's inconsistent, it's not according to Christ. It doesn't matter how persuasive it sounds. It doesn't matter how captivating the message is because it's absolutely incongruent, inconsistent, not according whatsoever to Christ. And this really, friends, is the epicenter of all false teaching. It mars and distorts the truth that's given to us in Christ. Christ is our laser level. Christ is the blueprint. Christ is the ultimate standard. And so every follower of Christ is always asking, is this contrary to Christ? Is this inconsistent with what has been revealed to us in the person and the ministry of Christ? Paul says, I am alarmed, I'm concerned. See to it, be aware, because everything that you're hearing, ultimately, it, it is not according to Christ. Now, means that the alarm of this teaching, it's not only the eventual ruin that it brings upon well-intending Christians, but if it's not according to Christ, then the, what this also means that it's a blasphemous reproach upon the person of Christ. And that's really the rub and the problem of all false teaching, isn't it? We tend to think pragmatically and say, well, what does that do? Well, it leads you into bondage. It leads you into all these things. It's unhelpful, but we say yes to that, but ultimately it defames the name of our Lord. If it says this is who Christ is and it's some marring distortion, twisted perversion of who he actually is, then it is a blasphemous insult to the true and the living God. So as we look around at various teachings that are promoted and shared even today, the same sort of alarm should be felt. Enslaving human traditions that are ultimately contrary to Christ. And so what do we do? This is where the remaining verses come in as Paul lays alongside this alarm the assurance of sound doctrine. Look back at verse 9. As opposed to what is not according to Christ. For in him... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you've been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through the faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead." back at verses 8 and 9, and notice how they are related by way of contrast. In seeing this, you realize Paul is kind of tipping his hand to the direction that he's going, and it has everything to do with the blatant contrast between false teaching and sound doctrine. Notice some of these words and how they're contrasted. He speaks of, in verse 8, empty deceit. Do you see the opposite of that in verse 9? Fullness of deity. In verse 8, he speaks of human tradition. And then verse 9, deity dwelling bodily. Paul is laying the groundwork for everything that he's going to unpack and saying these could not be more opposite and you need to see how they actually contradict to one another. What is empty versus what is full. What is human versus what is divine. He's saying, I'm going to show you the absolute error and emptiness of this teaching by laying it alongside the fullness and the glory of Christ. I know that you're hearing persuasive arguments and teachings that are promising you all sorts of power and experience and what it means to be a follower of Christ. But I want you to know, Colossians, this is actually who Christ is. And when you see who Christ is, this false teaching is going to sound ridiculously foolish. The assurance of sound doctrine is that we are, number one, made complete in Christ. That's verses 9 and 10. The assurance of sound doctrine is, first of all, seen in that we are, in fact, made complete in Christ. When Paul speaks of fullness in verse 9, he's actually expounding upon what he's already mentioned in chapter 1, verse 19. Because it's there, he said, that for in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. What he's getting at here is that it's not that God's presence is in Christ, but rather all that God is dwells in Christ. It's not merely a God-likeness that dwells in Christ, but Paul's language is the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The eternal Son of God took on human flesh. Two natures, one person. The eternal Son of God took on human flesh. So to say that Christians are united to Christ means that the substance and the assurance of our doctrine has everything to do with who is Christ we began by saying the the assurance of salvation and the confidence that we have of what it means to be saved is to be united to Christ, then who is this Christ? In a sense, if that's what we're hitching our trailer to, what are we hitched to? And Paul says, I want you to know the fullness and completeness that you have in being united to him because the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily in him. So some false teachers impressing upon you that Christ is anything less than that, anything less than deity dwelling bodily, not only are you embracing heresy, you are more likely then to be taken captive by some form of empty deception, believing that Christ is not sufficient. He's the fullness of deity dwelling bodily. You have been filled in him. Just as the glory of God filled the tabernacle in Exodus and later the temple, God dwells in Christ. The true and greater temple. And when Paul says that we are filled in him there in verse 10, it's in the sense of a past action with a current consequence. You have been filled in him. And so if that's true, then the Colossians will have no interest in listening to the false teachers once they hear of the completeness of what it means to actually be wed to Christ. The emphasis here is really just upon what Paul's already been laying out, the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ. Who is he? What has he accomplished? And friend, when you answer those two questions, who is Christ and what has he accomplished, that is the assurance that you need to understand not only what does it mean to be rescued from sin, but how do I live a Christian life? Who is Christ and what has he accomplished? Because it's only when we have a clear view of who Christ is that we're able to answer those questions well. And on the flip side, it's only when we have a deficient view of the person and ministry of Christ that we're tempted to look elsewhere for security, for some sense of experience, for some sense of victory over sin. Meaning if I believe that Christ is sufficient to deal with my sin in the past, but he's unable to sustain me in trial, that he's unable to satisfy me presently, then I'm going to be more likely to start looking for greener pastures. I need Christ to deal with my sin. Don't get me wrong. But I really want to experience Christianity. And therefore, that's why I need this. That should alarm you. Much like the motivation to an adulterous affair where one spouse convinces themselves that they are unsatisfied and incomplete in their marriage, that they need to look outside for some supplementary emotional or physical satisfaction that is supposedly going to bring the completion they seek. And this turning from Christ to false teaching is equally as adulterous. It's forsaking the fountain of living water and turning towards the gutter water of erroneous teaching because it's, the fullness of the Godhead dwelling bodily, he's also the sufficient head who's able to nourish, provide, and protect for his people. That's Paul's language, being our head. Sound doctrine and its assurance, it reminds us, first of all, that we are made complete in Christ. But in verse 11, it reminds us that we are circumcised in Christ. This confusion over circumcision within the new covenant And followers of Christ, it's not new. You may remember if you've recently read through the book of Acts, Acts chapter 15. We're told that some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Well, that changes things. I'm not Jewish. To follow Christ, do I need to become a Jew first? That's a really important question. Galatians 5 2. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, Old Covenant teaching, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. It appears that the rift that was there in Jerusalem and also in Galatia, that the false teachers of Colossae were also clinging to, that circumcision or adhering to Old Covenant law, Jewish law, was a necessary element for vital Christian living. And these Gentile Christians were not raised in Judaism. They would not have been circumcised. But should they? Physical circumcision was instituted by God to be a sign of the covenant between God and Israel. Genesis 17. But this sign of the covenant between God and the kingdom of Israel, it was also a shadow of something that most most ultimately must happen to God's people. In some ways, it is a metaphor for what must happen to the heart. Deuteronomy 36 is one, one instance. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart The heart of your offspring, so that you will love Yahweh, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. The sign of the covenant given to Old Covenant Kingdom of Israel served a purpose, but it also pointed to a a spiritual reality that must happen. That the cutting away of the flesh must happen to the heart. The circumcision of Christ is a metaphor for the conquering of the power of sin that takes place when a person is united to Christ. The body of flesh that Paul mentions in verse 11, that's equivalent to the body of sin that Paul mentions in Romans 6, 6. What does he say there? We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we could no longer be enslaved to sin. So Paul, what he's doing here, he's not describing the body in and of itself as sinful, but under the domination, the dominion of sin. So what's Paul saying to the Colossians? I know you're hearing that to be a genuine follower of Christ, you must also uphold the practice of circumcision. But I'm telling you, Colossians, you are circumcised in Christ. For the cutting away of the flesh that circumcision foreshadowed is completed in Christ. It's a circumcision, he says, it's not made with human hands. In contrast, this is a spiritual thing. This is a heavenly thing. This is a divine cutting away that God does by his spirit. This means Colossian and Christian today. That the only hope that you have to be freed from the corruption of your sin, the habits, the thoughts, and the reactions that you're ashamed of, or perhaps even at times angry over, it comes by way of union with Christ. It comes by way of something not made with hands. It comes by way of God and Christ. This means that to be a Christian, it means you're not only forgiven, but given new desires and new abilities to flee sin and to pursue Christ. To reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to God. Paul says something else here, that sound doctrine and the assurance of it is thirdly that we are verse twelve, buried and raised with Christ. Perhaps you've noticed through here how this language of, in Christ, now verse twelve, what does he say, with Christ. Now this sort of language it really becomes the linchpin to everything that Paul is saying. In Christ, with Christ, is the grounds of our assurance within the Christian faith. Belief in the death and resurrection is the means by which we experience truly and personally the promise of the gospel. No longer are we dominated by the powers of sin and death. We are now, as in Christ, ruled by righteousness, life, grace, which is in the Spirit of God. Listen to Romans 6. A very important passage to be clear on if we're going to understand what it means to be buried and raised with Christ. It's Romans 6, beginning in verse 4. Paul says there, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So what is Paul doing? Well, as he does in Romans, he locates our being buried with Christ in this term of baptism. Now, the connection between New Covenant ordinance of baptism and the mention of circumcision in verse 11 is often misunderstood and mistakenly applied. Just follow the logic of what Paul is saying here. Number one, he says in verse 11, you have been circumcised in Christ, meaning the body of the sinful flesh which brought dominion and bondage of sin, it has been cut away. Secondly, he says in verse 12, This circumcision, that event of the cutting away of the flesh, took place when you were buried with Christ and raised with him. Okay, Number three, this burial and resurrection has taken place by the fact that you are in Christ. To be dead to sin and alive to God is to be freed from the bondage of sin and the freedom of new birth within a new nature. Number four, verse 12, all of this comes by... What? Faith. The powerful working of God. This comes by faith in the powerful working of God. This is why the ordinance of baptism given to us in the new covenant, for all it points to and all it announces and all it testifies of, it belongs to those who, past tense, have been buried and raised with Christ through faith. The sign of baptism is given to the people of God who have placed their faith in Christ, having experienced the new life that God brings about. And this is why any attempt to apply the new covenant sign of baptism with the same criteria as the old covenant sign of circumcision is to violate the teaching of Scripture. Now, Lord willing, in two weeks... We will celebrate the ordinance of baptism here in our morning gathering. Going down into the water and coming up out of the water is the sign applied to those who have been buried with Christ and raised with him through faith. It's the sign of the new covenant given to those who are members of the new covenant. As our confession says, chapter 24, verse 1, To those baptized, it is a sign of their fellowship, their their sharing, their partnership with Christ in his death and resurrection, of their being grafted into him, of remission of sin, and of submitting themselves to God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. What is the assurance of sound doctrine? We're made complete in Christ, we're circumcised in Christ we are buried and raised with Christ but let's end here verses 13 through 15 we're made alive in Christ when you lay who Christ is and what he has done alongside the false teaching that is pervading what do you find we are made alive in Christ and Paul says that we're dead And he uses that word dead, it has everything to do with the sense of condemnation. Dead, what does he say? In sin. When you hear that word in, understand it to be in the sense of because of. Dead because of sin. Romans 5.12, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. And then verse 18, he said, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Hear what Paul is doing. He's connecting death to this understanding of condemnation. So this is why we say we're in sin. We are unable and unwilling to look to God. Part of that death certainly has to do with we have no appetite for God, no pulse towards God, no desire for him. We are haters of God. That is all true. In that state, not only are we spiritually dead to God, we are dead because of sin. We are in that state, in our natural state, because of the corruption of what sin does. To say, as he does in verse 13, that we are dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh, think of it as parallel expressions. The one is pointing to the other, and the other is pointing to the same. They're saying the same thing, pointing to the same reality. To remain in the uncircumcision of your flesh, where your sinful flesh is not cut away by Christ, is to be condemned in sin because you remain in your sinful flesh. A death sentence hangs over your head outside of Christ. You are dead in sin. But the wonderful assurance of sound doctrine teaches us that God gives life to those who are condemned to die. Instead of the death that we deserve for our trespasses, Paul says he graciously makes us alive together with his son. And as a result of that forgiveness comes life. And he says sins are forgiven. Do you notice how he qualifies it? All sin. Friend, if you missed those three letters, please look back at your Bible. All sin. Even the sin of last night. Even the sin of this past week. Even the sin that no one knows about. Even the sin you've confessed a hundred times. The promise of the gospel is all. All sin shall be forgiven. But do you see the connection that Paul's making? Do you see the connection between forgiveness and moving from death to life? Look at what He says here, the violation and the corruption of our trespasses, it brings death. But the forgiveness or the removal of these trespasses, it removes the condemnation. There's no need for death because the offense has been removed. This means that the assurance of our forgiveness, it's rooted in the payment of sin. Justice is satisfied and then forgiveness is extended. The wages of sin are no longer attributed to our account. That debt has been paid. It's been canceled. And that's the exact image that Paul uses there in verse 14. As he speaks in this language of a record of debt. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. What does that mean? It means that forgiveness is assured because the debt is paid. And friend, that is good news. Because if your idea of God forgiving sinners is that he just kind of sweeps it under the rug or that he thinks more of his gracious side than his judgmental side and you're forgiven, you have a wrong understanding of forgiveness that is so much better. The forgiveness of the Bible is that we are forgiven of sin because the payment that that sin owed is paid upon Christ. You're forgiven because the debt is removed. There's nothing left to exact There is no punishment left for the Christian because Christ has absorbed it all. Forgiveness is assured because debt is paid. And do you know what that means? It means that it would be unjust to exact payment for a debt that does not exist. And so when your conscience convicts you, when you sin, Christian, and you know that you are in the wrong, You know that you are guilty. What do you do next? What do you think of next? Because that is of utmost importance. The Christian is someone who has faith in God. And by faith in God, what that means is they recognize that the debt of that sin no longer hangs over them because Christ has paid for that sin. And so when they say, Father, forgive me, I confess this sin against you, their next response ought to be the greatest sigh, the greatest smile, and the greatest rejoicing, because they are assured that that sin is forgiven on the very foundation that justice is satisfied. There's no punishment left to exact. Christ has absorbed the debt. Now, there's a connection here between the record of debt and the legal demands, meaning there's something that God has owed here. That's what's underneath this. And if we don't see this, we're missing the, real, the teeth of, of the matter. There's something that God has owed and we are in debt because demands, certain demands have not been met. Do you know what you owe God? Kids, do you know what you owe God? Has anybody ever told you that you owe God something? Maybe it's not strange to even say such a thing. What, what do I owe God? The Bible is actually very clear. Every single one of us are debtors to God. Do you know what we owe him? Obedience. Our catechism, question 44. What is the duty that God requires of man? The duty which God requires of man is obedience to his revealed will. Hmm. What is his revealed will? Good question, 45. What did God first reveal to man as the rule of his obedience? The rule which God at first revealed to man for his obedience, is the moral law. Ten Commandments are essential. They're foundational. They're perpetual. They're continual. It's not by coincidence that we're going to be reading through the Ten Commandments for the next couple of weeks, reminding ourselves of what has God revealed to us? What is owed to him? Obedience. That means that underneath every sin is the breach of God's law. The damning condemnation that we do not give the obedience that God deserves. The law of God stands as the primary witness against us, pointing out every breach of contract, every failure to execute, every negligent word, every unfaithful thought. And it's perfect in doing so. The legal demands held against us. In our sin, the handwriting of requirements, it's against us. It's an open and shut case. But in Christ, having been buried with him and raised with him, we discover that the record of debt that stood against us has been wiped clean. The debt is forgiven because it's satisfied upon the cross. Christ took upon himself the penalty of our disobedience, What was owed to him, he took that upon himself, satisfying that perfectly in the keeping of God's law and sacrificially paying for the negligent neglect of obedience to that law in his death and into the resurrection saying, it's paid, it's satisfied. The death of Christ is the death that we deserve. The death of Christ is the punishment for the sins of God's people. For any who trust in his provision, they hear these words, it's finished. But what I find interesting is the connection that Paul makes in verse 15 between this canceling of the debt of forgiveness of sin and the disarming of the rulers and spiritual authorities. He uses very Romanesque Imagery here of this triumphing over them in them. Think of, you know, great Greek or Roman victory parade where the the enemy is vanquished, the conquering general rides through the town, great victory parade, and those that have been conquered, they've been shamed, dishonored, and it's hail to the victor. That's the imagery that Paul's using here. They're disarmed, they're put to open shame. Okay what powers did these rulers and principalities, these spiritual hosts of wickedness, what power did they hold apart from the work of the cross? What I'm asking is, what's the connection between the victory of the cross and the disarming of these spiritual rulers? When Jesus died, did he have to pay a debt to Satan? Some would teach that, but I don't see that in our scriptures at all. Satan certainly leverages our sin, but we are not the victims. We are the haters. We are the guilty. So what is the connection between the triumphing over them in him? I think it's twofold. The victory, the disarming, is over the bondage of sin and the guilt of sin. Think about this. Because of the bondage of sin, we are enslaved to be the willing followers of satanic schemes. Are you already thinking of Ephesians 2? And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The bondage of sin makes us willing captives to follow the schemes of our enemy but not only the bondage of sin. How is the guilt of sin? that Satan leverages the guilt of sin on a daily basis. He's the accuser of the brethren. He, is, he and his demonic principalities, rulers, and authorities, they seek to accuse, they seek to condemn, they seek to drown you in condemnation, saying, you are so guilty. You do not deserve any of this. And you're racked by guilt and shame. But through forgiveness... Through the canceling of the debt, both the guilt of sin and the bondage of sin are no longer the leverage that these spiritual hosts of wickedness can hold over us. I'm no longer in bondage to sin. I'm not following the prince of the courts or the power of this air, And I'm no longer in guilt because of my sin. You can accuse, but there's nothing to condemn. That's why Luther said, so when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I'll admit That I deserve death and hell, what of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is there, I shall be also. Essentially, Luther said, union with Christ. It's true, but here's what else is true. Where he is, I shall be also. So we ask again, are you saved? Are you in Christ? Are you with Christ? Are you united to Christ? Wonderful news we hear and receive from the scriptures. The fullness of Christ is ours. All that he is, Christian, is yours. The bondage of sin that condemns us and corrupts us, it's cut away. His death For sin is our death for sin. His resurrection unto life is our resurrection unto life. Because he lives, we live. God has raised us with him. So while there may be many alarms to such false teaching, not only here in Colossae, but in our present day, the Christian is one who says, What of it? Who is Christ? What has he done? Let's lay that alongside with what I'm hearing. When my conscience condemns me, when the enemy pursues, what of it? Who is Christ and what has he done? That's the assurance that sound doctrine brings. And may the Lord continue to ground us as his people and grow us in our Savior because it's in him that we find not only all the riches of Christ, but we find all the nourishment that we need as God's people. Father, we pray and we ask that you would help us to hear and to receive all that is given to us in your Son. Lord, we confess not only that the the errors and the false teaching that abounds in this day presses in upon us, but Lord, within our own hearts, we are so prone to wander. We're so prone to find substitutes and replacements, to find anything to assuage our guilt or to give us hope in this life. And yet, Lord, how good it is to hear that your Son is not only supreme over all things, but he is wonderfully sufficient. So continue to grow us in Christ that we might understand all he is and all he's accomplished. Continue to guard us and keep us from anything that would erode or seek to undermine that great foundation that we stand upon. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to grow us in our assurance of the faith, our assurance of sins forgiven, our assurance of your good favor upon us that you delight in your children. Lord, grow us in this insofar as that it is grounded in Christ, we pray. Amen.